Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have James McGrath as our guest to talk about his new book, What Jesus Learned from Women. James is a professor of New Testament language and literature at Butler University. This book explores the influence women had on Jesus and explores what he learned from them. In this book, James, you look at various encounters that Jesus had with specific women, such as the Samaritan woman, Mary and Martha of Bethany, the woman accused of adultery, Mary Magdalene and Joanna, just to name a few. And you began each chapter with a sort of historical reimagining of Jesus's encounter with each of these women. And then you followed up with carefully researched explanations of the kind of things that Jesus learned from each of these women. And as I was looking through it, I thought this is such an interesting and readable way to look at the impact that each of these women had on the development of Jesus. Um, So I guess I want to start by asking... What did you learn from the process of writing this book? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's a great question. And there, there's this interesting resonance that happens when you write a book about somebody else learning. There is yeah. so much that you learn in the process of research, researching probably any book, but uh, particularly when you're focused on that. Uh, this book was just a constant experience of, of new discoveries because as I asked this question, which I don't think had been asked in quite this form, in quite as direct a way at least, uh, previously, things that I had failed to notice in very familiar texts uh, came to my attention. And so really that is uh, the thing, if I, if I were to say one thing that I learned as sort of big picture across the whole book, it was that when we don't ask certain questions, we miss things, right? We can be careful readers, we can train ourselves to be careful readers, and yet questions that we neglect to ask, questions we don't think to ask, leads us to miss things nonetheless. Well, James, um, you know, I've known you for quite a while, and this is... um... This is, to me, a very interesting approach that I haven't seen from stuff you've done before. You've kind of, in a typical Jimmy Dunn fashion, you've worked out Christological questions time and time again, asked historical questions, canon questions. Uh, so I I was fascinated by this approach. I, When I wrote this little book on Mary, uh, and I know I was, I was grateful that you even mentioned it, um, it's, it's for church folks, but... I was uh, I was really impressed with the Magnificat as the kind of thing that could have had an impact on Mary, on Jesus, and you know I used to tell I would tell my classes when when Mary rocked Jesus to sleep she sang the Magnificat. Now, of course I don't know that, mm-hmm. but let's just say that this is typical of of her beliefs. Mm-hmm. Well, then there's an impact, and I I, I remember bringing this up at times. So one of the questions I would ask you is, when you talk about these topics, and I'm, you know, you're a teacher, uh, and you you teach Sunday school class, uh, you've brought this up in many of your, in your settings, I wonder what kind of affirmations you're hearing 
from people, you know, both in your classroom and in, uh, let's say, even in Sunday school classes. What do people, what do they like about this? <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. And first of all, let me, let me say that uh, there's credit that um, sort of went to someone else who was sure that you had said something about, you know, like Mary bouncing James on her knee while singing the Magnificat or something like that. And was pretty sure it was in your book on Mary. And so I was looking in there, looking in there and kind of going through it, trying to trying to find out like, no, I don't think that that actual phrase is in there. So I asked the person on Facebook, I was like, can I attribute this to you in a footnote? Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if, in fact, he has heard you speak or taken a class with you or something like that. And so, yeah, maybe, um, you know, and because yeah. I do stuff on podcasts and, you know, it gets yeah. repeated. So, yeah. But he was, he was sure it was in your book, you know, as often happens. We, we, yeah. we hear something in one place, we know the author's written about it, and we, we think it's in the, the book, actually, and yeah. tried to track it down. Otherwise, um, yeah. if there is a revised version, I will say, you know, as said by Scott McKnight in his classes or something <laughs> like that. Um, but this is a book that really was, was sort of born and nurtured in two environments, sort of my academic environment at Butler, uh, there's a direct influence that led to me writing this book there, and then my Sunday school class, and I imposed on their goodwill, uh, they were surprisingly willing, but uh, asked them if they'd be open to discussing, at the very least, the topics and the stories, and if any of them wanted to, to actually take a look at drafts of chapters and talk about those with me. And I thank them in my, you know, in my foreword to the, the book and my preface yeah. because they, they really did help shape it. And in some cases actually had thoughts, insights, suggestions, things that occurred to them as we were talking that uh, found, found their way in there. Um, but the conversations also led to me thinking things that I otherwise might not have. But the book actually started... Uh, in a conversation at Butler. Uh, Butler is an interesting place to teach uh, New Testament and biblical studies. Uh, Butler is not religiously affiliated, but it's in the United States, in the Midwest, and so most of our students are, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are these conversations that happen um, sometimes outside of the classroom uh, that take, take a different approach sometimes than what uh, happens typically within the classroom. And so it was actually a conversation of that sort that led to the book most directly. And it was brainstorming topics for an honors thesis with a student who wanted to do an honors thesis that would let her explore the relationship between her, her growing sense of being a feminist and her Christian faith. And she hoped those two are compatible, but she was not um, entirely sure and thought that the conviction that they could be compatible could do with some reinforcement. And so I immediately started to think, okay, yeah, should I recommend that she work with somebody else who maybe does a bit more contemporary theology type stuff, uh, is more focused on you know, church history and could do those aspects, or should I look for a New Testament topic that we could uh, dig into? And so I sort of did what I sometimes do, which is you know, flip things around in my head and said, yeah, well, lots of people have written about women as you know, disciples of Jesus, uh, learn, learning from Jesus. Uh, if you want to do something really new, maybe you could look at women, you know, like Jesus learning from women. And the idea had occurred to me for some reason. The student, it turned out, was 
not at all interested in doing that and did something completely different. But the idea sat with me and I said, you know, I think there might be something to this. And as I started digging into it, it led to interesting places. Uh, one of the things you learn as an author over time, uh, you, you, I think you go into it thinking that if you say that this book will appeal to every possible audience and everyone will love it equally, then uh, publishers will be happy. And I was so happy, relieved when a publisher actually said, yeah, nobody actually does that. And if you try, you will probably fail miserably. Uh, right. Nonetheless, I did want this to be a book in which I could explore these things in an academic way and yet at least make it accessible to, to uh, a wider audience. And that was where the idea of retelling the stories came in. And yet I found in the process of working on that that I really do think that trying to tell stories when you're doing historical reconstruction is actually a really rigorous mode of evaluating your reconstruction. Because mm -hmm. sometimes you can have these individual snippets of so-called fact or hypothesis that sound plausible, and you try and tell the story around those, and you suddenly realize, yeah, I can't see this happening. This just doesn't sit right. It doesn't make sense. Or I can't imagine people actually having this conversation or things like that. And so I think it did, uh, did serve a helpful purpose, even from the academic perspective. Um, and I would highly recommend that more people try, try their hand at doing a bit of historical fiction if they are in this sort of field. Well, Theodore White made the big point that all history is fiction, is that it's, uh, it's an attempt to tell a narrative that doesn't exist uh, on the basis of some evidence, you know, depending how reliable it is, and then putting it all together. Um, you know, I, I heard someone call uh, N.T. Wright the other day a mythologist mm. uh, because he puts together a story, you know, of how it all works. Well, I think the best historians do that. That's exactly what they do. And uh, so, um, you know, uh, looking at these positive experiences you've had with it, what um, when you've taught about this, have you had any serious pushbacks? What Where are the tension points that you're experiencing with students and people when you when you talk about Jesus learning from women? Yeah, well, the, the two biggest ones, you know, I mean, I've, I've sometimes gotten pushback on details. It's like, yeah, that's a little bit too speculative or, you know, do we really know that? Or, you know, and of course, there's a there's a big disclaimer that in trying to flesh out these stories, I am. I am narrating around yeah. the things that I think we can we can know with a, a high degree of certainty, you know, as sort of the, the bedrock and anchor, but then things that we know were generally true. And so there's a a reasonable likelihood that it was at least somewhere in the vicinity of that. And then trying to flesh it out in the way that anyone, you know, whether they're telling the story of women in the early Christian movement or the story of Jesus himself, right? A filmmaker mm -hmm. has to say, okay, but where do we set this? And, you know, who else is around and what else is happening? And uh, what props are sort of on the set, as it were, as this is unfolding? Um, and you look at different Jesus movies and see the same things happening. So I've, I've gotten, you know, fairly friendly, you know, pushback on some of the details, but I think the bigger things that tend to come up are, okay, so Jesus learned? How can God yeah. learn? That doesn't make any sense. And, of course, sometimes when you ask what's really driving that, 
the the fact that it is women that I'm focusing on him learning from does seem to be a factor in their uh, sort of mm-hmm. negative reaction to this. Uh, because the idea that Jesus had, in some sense, you know, connected with John the Baptist, you know, that John the Baptist might have been an influence and a mentor on, um, in some way, shape, or form, historians have discussed that, and the reaction, you know, may still be negative, like, well, Jesus is God, he didn't need to learn from anyone, nobody's, you know, his mentor, nobody's his, you know, anything. The reaction is still not the same, I think, and so I think... I suspected as I was writing the book and have found it to be true already that even the way people react to the telling of these stories, the exploration of these possibilities, the asking of these questions, I think, I think is useful in what it, what it brings to light. But uh, on the whole, you know, one of the things that really was helpful and shaped the direction the book took was the fact that I was writing in the context of a Sunday school class uh, and for a group that was within a denomination that ordains women and recognizes women's ministry. And so some of the controversies that you might get here or there in an, and might get a lot of in another context, um, I didn't face. And so while there are lots of books that are essentially still trying to make that case, you know, both to reinforce those who have the conviction, but really to, to try to win over and persuade those who are not yet convinced, this book really does sort of skip past that and says, let's, let's take for granted that this is a possibility and let's, let's see what we actually see if we ask the question in this form. You know, um, I remember way back in the days when I was teaching at TED's Trinity, um, when I would start talking about Jesus in the Gospels, I remember saying in a class one time, Jesus learned math the way we do, and he he made mistakes. He had to, and I had students who say, "No, he couldn't." I thought, you know, really, you've made him you've made him a a, a hovercraft floating above the water rather than in the water itself. So, uh, the the whole process of learning, um, yes, there's the astounding scene in Luke chapter two that Jesus is lecturing the uh, leading authorities. But, I mean, it's the position of give and take uh, that Jesus was able to hold his own. Yeah, he's precocious and he's brilliant and all that stuff, but he isn't um, omniscient uh, in that sense, uh, the way we often talk about in classic Christian theology about God. So I'm immediately inclined, James. I think it's a good idea to ask the question, when these Jesus has these encounters from women, what does he pick up? Uh, you know, in, in that in that sense, learning, we all learn from all our experiences, especially significant ones, and these are ones that are so impressionable. You know, they're remembered as impressionable. So, to quote Jimmy Dunn, um, that uh, I think we we have to begin thinking. How did Jesus pick up some of this stuff? And uh, so I, I think in general, uh, the point you make is important for even for classic Christian orthodoxy in affirming the humanity of Jesus. This is how things work. So, you know, I'm uh, I think I think our readers, our listeners, I should say, and your readers 
would love to hear you just explain some of these women. So, so talk to us a little bit about Mary, if you don't mind, and uh, what you think Jesus learned from Mary. Yeah, uh, well, presumably, given what you just said, I should start with math, right? Um, it's probably some <laughs> basic counting. And you know, learning to talk, right? We yeah. do have you know apocryphal stories that imagine Jesus being born and he starts pontificating yeah. immediately, right? That's, yeah. 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 And we, you know, the church did not include those in its canon, but they have had an influence and they certainly reflect one possible um, approach yeah. to Jesus. Yeah, good. Point. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm sure that all of this has been shaped, you know, partly by my realization when I uh, studied his, uh, church history and the history of Christian doctrine as an undergrad, realizing that I was something of a heretic because I really did sort of think of Jesus as more like a a hovercraft, you know, or a, a sort of divine person dressed up as a human being so he could feel stuff and interact with us, but not a full fledged human being who had all of the full range of human experiences. And of course, you've mentioned Jimmy Dunn a couple of times, right? A, a mentor to an influence on us both. And you know, I, I do like to think that this is, in some ways, pursuing you know, the the work they did on the historical Jesus and asking, you know, what does it mean to say that, you know, what we have is how Jesus was remembered, right? So in the case of Mary, I think that you know, I I really I had to start the book there. There was no place else. I toyed with other ideas. There are other chapters where there was more that you could say where you could be sort of historically certain, make a more traditional historical type of argument uh, based on specific things that are in the text, that sort of thing. But all it takes to conclude that Jesus learned from Mary is to affirm that Jesus was genuinely, without reservation, a fully human being, right? Because... If that's the case, then you cannot bypass sort of a mother's influence, mother's role in nurturing and fostering and teaching. And so I think that there is a lot there. I think there's there's real content to what Mary has attributed to her. It's it's not a lot, but it's more than any other woman in the New Testament. Yeah, that's right. And and it's it's striking. It's fascinating, right? It resonates yeah. with a knowledge of the scriptures, right? And so even asking, you know, how would a woman such as Mary living in a place like Nazareth, what kind of access would she have had to the scriptures? And oftentimes the assumption is, well, men had the chance to learn, women didn't, and things like that. But in this primarily oral environment, most men were not literate. It's just that the few educational opportunities, opportunities for formal education that there were, went, tended to go to men. And so most men and women who were steeped in scripture were steeped in it through hearing, right? Hearing it read aloud, uh, hearing it, in, encountering it in the synagogue, uh, encountering it in the home as parents told things to children and so on. And Mary, if the depiction of her in the New Testament is accurate, took those things to heart uh, seemed to really find that uh, the emphasis on things like social justice that we get in uh, particularly like the 8th century prophets and those sorts of figures uh, resonated with her, echoed you know, in her own poetry, right? her own composition, uh, her own teaching. And so if the Magnificat does give us even the slightest hint of what 
Mary taught and what she stood for, then the fact that we see it, uh, see those same themes, those same threads, emphases coming through in Jesus' teaching has to be significant, right? And so I say in the book that Luke, uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, is the only one that tells us explicitly Jesus learned, right? And mm -hmm. it's the only one that gives us, here's what Mary had to say. And then when it depicts Jesus's uh, teaching, for instance, the, the Beatitudes, they are, you know, the version in Luke is probably closer to what we get in the Magnificat, right? The, you know, blessed are you who are poor, right? Rather than mm -hmm. Matthew's blessed mm -hmm. are the poor in spirit. And so you put those things together and whether he's doing it intentionally or just because it's the impression he's gotten and it's coming through, this author is telling us that Jesus got these things from his mother. Yeah. And I think that if, if that were, if that were all we could say, that would, you know, that would probably be enough to at least get us started. You know, James, I'm, I've, I've done this. I one time, you know, you, you were talking about the beginning, how, uh, a student asked you a question about this paper and you started thinking about something and it turned into a book. I was, uh, I was uh, teaching at a, a, at a Christian college for a day. I did chapel. When chapel was over, the professor says, hey, I got a class now. Would you be willing to teach it? I said, okay. And he said, what? He says, we're doing Luke. I said, okay. Um, and I and as we were walking together, and he was chatting a little bit, I was trying to think about what am I going to say. I tied together the Magnificat and Luke chapter four with Jesus's inaugural sermon, and the Beatitudes, and the words of John the Baptist. Okay, now I got to jump ahead here, all the way to Acts chapter one and Acts chapter two, and Acts one tells us that Mary is a part of that early Jerusalem community. And there we practice this, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it in Acts 2, this early Christian taking care of one another. And I thought, wow, Mary is seeing what the Magnificat in, a some, in some sense was anticipating. So I, I, I think that um, your decision to move from Magnificat into Jesus learning and into the Beatitudes, I, I think, and even the inaugural sermon, this stuff is consistent with Mary's vision. And if if the Magnificat reflects Mary, then uh, Jesus may have picked up the heart of his justice theme from his mother. And my goodness, this, uh, this doesn't make it. You know, one time, this is no kidding, James. I was teaching at Willow Creek on this topic. And a man, a man came up to me afterwards. He said, are you a Roman Catholic? I said, why? He said, well, you talk so much about Mary. You have to be a Catholic. I said, I think all I talked about what was in Luke, the Gospel of Luke. So um, it, is, uh, it is an amazing thing. Okay, now, what about the Samaritan woman? I find the Samaritan woman a fascinating story. So um, what did Jesus learn from her? Yeah, and that's, you know, there we get into the Gospel of John, and of course, you know, that's that's where I started, you know, my, my yeah. sort of New Testament, uh, you know, advanced study. I did my doctoral work on John's Christology. And one of the things you learn early on, uh, if you haven't picked it up already, is that 
John has all this, these unique stories, these things that are not found in other Gospels, and it's all told in this author's unique style. And you put those two things together, and historians tend to be you know, fairly skeptical of things that are in John and not found elsewhere. And I've gone back and forth on that quite a bit, but I've certainly moved in the direction that where we find themes and motifs and impressions, you know, an overall portrait sort of coming through across a wide array of material, that you know, that's more important, right? That's the uh, point that Dale Allison's been making recently, that you know, the gist that comes through uh, is, is more likely to be historical than any detail, you know, no matter how much attention we pay to it. And I think that, you know, however much it's told in this author's unique style, there is, there is an encounter here that goes back to something that actually probably had an influence on Jesus and on his movement and on the way he was remembered. And the Samaritan woman story you know, really was you know, sort of an important one in the coming together of this book, because it was the one that I started thinking about and realized that this thing you could see in the case of Mary, right? He didn't have to make much of a case for it. And then there's the Syrophoenician woman that people always talk about as, you know, may have had an impact on Jesus. And if that's it, then it's a short book, right? And so it was thinking about the Samaritan woman story where I asked, you know, so is, is there anything like that there? And I realized the narrator tells us that the disciples are surprised that Jesus is talking to this woman. They don't, they don't ask him, right? They're they know better, apparently, but they they have questions, right? Even though they don't voice them. If this is Jesus' usual practice already by this point, then they don't have those questions, right? And so that suggests that this encounter is actually having an influence. It's it's leading to things. And it's interesting. I, I'm sure that two things probably were, were there in my framework even, even before I... Um, started tackling these things. And neither of them is really a, a historical principle, but both are, are relevant. Uh, one is, you know, there's this emphasis in uh, certain strands of Christian theology, um, particularly in, uh, I think, in Eastern Orthodoxy some of the times, but also in a number of other modern strands, emphasizing that we know and we, we have a sense of who we are in, in communion with one another. And oftentimes that shapes their, their approach to Trinitarian theology, for instance. But also, you know, studying things like missiology and you know, cross-cultural communication, you learn that oftentimes in other cultures, there's much more of a communal identity and that we, we get a sense of who we are. We understand ourselves in conversation, in relation to others. And so when you bring those things sort of into the picture, when you have a Jewish man you know, who's not expected to have a positive experience uh, in Samaria and encountering this woman and having not expected to talk to her, certainly not expected to, to share utensils or, you know, share, uh, you know, engage in this back and forth, talk about theology in places of worship, any of these things. Uh, it's, it is surprising in that context. Right? And I think that in the course of the conversation, it's not just that the, the woman changes and thinks this could be the Messiah, but that you know, Jesus, you know, what Jesus will do from then on presumably changes. He'd, you know, according to the, the, the Gospel of John, he'd had a, a fairly disappointing conversation with somebody who you'd think ought to know the scriptures really well, right? Nicodemus. 
and John does this thing that he does, you know, with the, you know, Jesus says something and then the person he's talking to doesn't, you know, takes it on one level, the sort of mundane level, and then Jesus says, no, I'm in something, you know, much more, much more interesting and spiritual. But in this, in this story, right, with the, the focus on living water, it quickly turns to some of the, the differences that separate Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus, you know, in the course of the conversation, you know, says, you know, on the one hand that, you know, salvation is of the Jews, you don't know what you worship. On the other hand, you know, the woman makes a fairly good case that, you know, God is not going to leave even these uh, sort of fragments of the northern tribes in darkness, right, that God will send someone who will clarify things. And so, you know, if we're, if we're worshiping in ignorance, you know, then, then all the more reason to hope that that moment will come. And, and the conversation takes all these interesting positive turns, not just because of the impetus that Jesus gives it, but because of the things that, that the Samaritan woman brings, uh, the, the questions she has about places of worship, uh, the fact that she can, she can discuss theology and she can hold her own. She can discuss liturgy and hold her own in that way. And so I think each of these encounters with people where you're crossing, you're crossing a boundary that normally divides people, the very act of doing that, the very act of having that conversation has to be transformative, right? And has to be, has to be significant. And Although I hadn't really looked for the impact on Jesus before, right? You look for the impact on, you know, Samaritans being welcome in the church and bring the, Jesus bringing the people of God together and things like that. It, it, it seems to come through when you start approaching the story through that lens. Hmm. Now, I've got, a, I've got a question that's not in your book. Okay. All right, you're asking this kind of question, and it... Uh, and because you've asked this question, you've uh, all of a sudden you've begun to explore things that you hadn't thought about because you didn't ask the questions before. Okay, this is this is methodologically very sound. This is our questions, our heuristics determine what we what we're going to find. And I think I think methodologically, uh, this is an important point. And the question I I know of nothing like this. I know of no book like this. Um. But it makes me wonder, what about other characters in the Gospels that we haven't asked this way? What did Jesus learn, for instance? Uh, I'm asking you on the spot. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. What did he learn from the Pharisees? Hmm. Yeah, and I probably should have seen this coming, right? Uh, you've got that, um, you know, that, that the, there's a book that we were all involved in, you know, Who Do My Opponents Say That I Am, right? It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, and I, I think there isn't there a, a U two lyric right you know choose your enemies wisely because they will define you and of course I think that's not start not original to Bono you know but anyway um, the interaction with others that we disagree with also shapes us you know certainly yeah, yeah. and yeah you know, I think you know I th there are ways that I probably could connect that with the with the book because you know the sort of the Pharisees and others that ask Jesus questions uh, are. Uh, do come up in the process. But I think that, you know, the, the fact that Jesus was not simply off somewhere saying what he thought, formulating his ideas, but had alternative approaches to things like purity, right? To mm -hmm. saying, we hope that God will uh, restore the nation. How do we, how do we persuade God to do that, right? What do the people have to become? How do we, 
Yeah. How do we get more rigorous? How do we crank things up a notch so that God will finally mm-hmm. be pleased with us and show us show us the favor that we, um, you know, haven't experienced because of our our sins past and present? And Jesus comes up with a different answer. And they don't leave him alone and say, "Okay, yeah. well, that's your answer. You you do your thing, and we'll do ours, and we'll see which one turns out to be more persuasive." Uh, there's this back and forth, right, all across the gospel mm-hmm. tradition, and so I think that's. You know, that's, um, you know, again, likely to be historical using you know, the standard methods, right? And I think that when we get those stories, it's not just Jesus showing up the opponents, and so Jesus looks good, and that's why the stories are in there. It may be that because the human person of Jesus was a given for the very earliest Christians in a way that sometimes it's not for uh, later generations, where the divinity can overshadow everything. It may be that the, the formative influence of those conversations on Jesus was one of the reasons that those stories were in there as well. Right? It's like mm-hmm. Jesus mm-hmm. emphasizing these things. Um, it's not just that Jesus started out and said all these things, but as they provoked him and challenged him, right? he came up with these these responses. Right? You You mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, I was thinking about this, uh, one of the great things about teaching is that people ask you to do things and ask you questions about things on the spot, right? And then, yep, yep. and as you try to find an answer, because you don't want to look foolish, um, or at least that's what I do. I don't know. Maybe everybody else uh, is better prepared than I am. But oftentimes I discover new things in that moment because mm-hmm. the question has forced me to connect things in ways that I hadn't connected. Right? Yeah. And so I think that the the Pharisees, you know, challenging Jesus on, you know, why do your, you know, why do you let your disciples do this? Why this? Why that? Uh, why don't you? Actually, does more than just provide an opportunity to say, well, here's what I do, here's why I do it, but to to articulate the rationale and to develop it further. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think that's definitely the case. And in the case of the Pharisees specifically, since you asked about them, I didn't know, I don't know whether that was it's like. I really want to know about the Pharisees very specifically, or if it's no. what do you learn from no. interacting with opponents. But no, in I'd their like case, to, I, yeah, yeah, I think it would. Yeah, you know, certainly the the fact that some, you know, it, it's it's an approach to getting the people of God right and on track and on target by narrowing the boundaries. I think uh, in in certain ways, hmm. and Jesus' approach seems to have been one of broadening out. Right, whether it's. Mm-hmm. You know, they narrow the definition because if we know exactly what the law requires, then we can do it. And mm-hmm. that's not just an ancient Pharisee thing, right? Plenty of modern Christians, the same thing. Let's, sure, sure, sure. let's say exactly what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do on a Sunday. And then we'll do, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> and, you know, exactly. So the churches that don't ordain women, you know, okay, well, you can speak if you're standing here, but you can't speak if you're standing there. And all the, you know, get into the yeah. gritty details. And yeah. Jesus' approach was to say, Put yourself in the other person's shoes. What would you want done to you? Do that to others, right? And that sort of thing. And so mm-hmm. I think Jesus' approach of you know, expanding boundaries, you know, messing with definitions rather than uh, focusing on defining them and clarifying them more and more narrowly, probably comes out not just of things that were there initially when he started, but out of those conversations with others who were trying to trying to take a different approach to, to righteousness and to the people of God. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. 
Um, one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is just the number of recorded conversations that we have between Jesus and women. Um, we have a lot of different, you know, examples in scripture of Jesus having encounters and conversations with a lot of different groups of people, but I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems unique or significant that we have so many recorded instances of him having these conversations with women it seems like a surprise for that time period, for the ancient world, for, for a Jewish man to sit down and have an extended conversation with a woman. And to have that recorded for us um, just seems significant in and of itself. And, and I love that you're asking the question, what did Jesus learn from those encounters? How is he himself transformed by those conversations? And it gets me thinking or just imagining that God enters the world enters his created world and learns from it. I think that alone is just a really fascinating kind of train of thought to go down and to think that Jesus is having these encounters with women and walking away from those encounters, knowing more and understanding personally more about his creation than he did before those encounters. I think that that to me was the greatest takeaway from the book was just thinking through like, oh, that's a really beautiful way of thinking about God and his personal investment in the lives of humans that that Jesus walked into these encounters knowing something about, you know, these women because he's God, but walking away from those conversations, he knew more. And he knew something different than he did walking into them. So all of that is really rich and I think um, just beneficial to think about. So I really appreciate that. That was that was a fun thing to learn from the book. And I think that's helpful for people to think about that, that God just intimately cares about his people. So they, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing the um... The, that response and just what you're finding there. Um, certainly there are, there are mm -hmm. lots of potential theological implications and connections that I don't draw, uh, not least because uh, the, making the book any longer pro and probably would have been a distraction. And then if you, if you get any detail of, you know, some of those things, um, I don't want to say wrong, but not the way that some reader thinks they ought to be, then of course you can alienate someone and <laughs> um, they won't even, read the stories you're trying to tell or look at some of those yeah. other things. Yeah. But yeah, I, right. I do think that, you know, there's, there's a real sense in which, you know, in a context in which certainly in, in the Greco-Roman world and in the sort of the halls of the uh, intellectual elite in that time, the assumption was that God is, you know, above being impacted by things. And mm. at the intersection with that, oftentimes the Jewish tradition as well, you know, and the Christian tradition later on as well, uh, moved in that direction and defined God in those sorts of terms. Mm. But a God who creates, a God who is depicted as sort of getting, you know, God's hands dirty, as it were, uh, forming and doing things. When you create, when you have relationships that you know, the other person was not there before, you create new people and new mm. conversation partners. It has to have an impact. Um, we we see again and again that yeah. God is sometimes disappointed. Of course, that's one possible kind of impact. But there's also delight, right? That uh, as yeah. you create, suddenly you're saying, you know, it is very good, and hmm. that suggests that some something has changed. And in the process of creating, I think yeah. anyone who creates will say that 
the process doesn't just change the thing that we're working on, but changes us as well. Yeah, that's good. Well, I so appreciate the opportunity to spend some time talking about this book. And just a reminder to our listeners, the book is entitled What Jesus Learned from Women. And our guest has been James McGrath. And I hope that this was helpful to all of you. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 